0: Good afternoon, good evening. You're on Equal Footing with Dove Tusman. Welcome. We have a very salient topic tonight, of the moment. Ripple Effect, The Rest of Healthcare in a COVID-Obsessed World. That's our discussion topic for tonight. How is this pandemic that we're all living through affecting the way we care for ourselves, the way the healthcare system interacts with us as patients? How are the healthcare frontline workers doing in this time, you know, uh COVID-19 is obviously not the only affliction that we're dealing with as individuals and societies. We are blessed this evening to have two extraordinary guests, uh, people that have committed their lives to patient care and are absolute um, heroes in my mind. I have the pleasure to know both outside of the context of this radio program and uh, they're just extraordinary individuals. Dr. Susan Clifford is on. Hi, Dr. Clifford.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Dr. Clifford is a board-certified nephrologist who has completed her medical residency and nephrology fellowships through the New York University School of Medicine. She's practiced, practiced in both the United States and Israel. She's practiced nephrology and internal medicine for over 16 years, and she's a partner in a successful private practice in the New York area. So you can call and look her up, Dr. Susan Clifford, and she is deeply, deeply invested in long-term patient care. I've talked to her uh, offline, and I know that she sees her patients as family. Dr. Clifford has graduated from the University of Michigan and where she was a trainer there for varsity athletes which is pretty impressive at the University of Michigan. We are also joined this evening by Dr. Peter Graves. Dr. Graves, welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited.
0: Dr. Graves is is I believe calling in from Rhode Island. And Dr. Graves is a board-certified emergency medicine physician who has been in practice in the New England area for over 20 years. And Dr. Graves and I are just about exactly the same age. Uh, he's worked in a variety of practice settings from urban, academic, medical centers to small community hospitals, so it brings a lot of different perspectives to the table. Dr. Graves has served in a leadership role as the chief of emergency medicine in a large suburban emergency department. He values a healthy work-life balance and looks forward to a time when he and his family can again enjoy their passion for travel locally and around the world. Dr. Graves, Dr. Clifford, I appreciate you guys taking time out. In fact, I know that both of you are, you know, you could be on call at any moment. You could get pulled away even from, from this, uh, from this show. And, and uh, if that happens, we'll, we'll all understand. I want to start with the general question of how has the pandemic reality affected the way you guys deal with patients that don't have COVID-19, Doctor Clifford? I I know you you deal with uh, death and dying in your practice. You deal with uh, chronic issues that require constant care and in a certain sense, the pandemic has probably overshadowed some of the other um, the other chronic conditions that you deal with. How has it affected your relationship with patients?
1: I, I, the entire way we connect with patients has been changed, uh, changed drastically. Previously, I, I worked both outpatient and inpatient. In the outpatient setting, if someone is sick, they call us immediately and we bring them in. Now, if someone is sick, we can't bring them in. We can't bring them to the office and care for them, which goes really against everything we've learned and done for, for ages and always in the practice of medicine. The whole point is not to turn away a patient. It's to be able to care for them wholly and completely. And it's, it's, as an outpatient physician, very difficult to do that. And on the flip side, taking care of patients in the hospital, for physicians to be providing care from outside of a room, many patients who were admitted to the hospital with COVID, one physician would see them and the rest would provide care from outside of the room, also goes against everything we were taught, trained, and are truthfully comfortable doing. Caring for a patient without the physical contact is extremely difficult.
0: I imagine that. Dr. Gray, your your being in the emergency room has got to be—it's got to accentuate even the issue that Dr. Clifford is is, is talking about here. I mean, do, do you deal with how patients are, you know, registering your facial expressions behind a mask? I mean, how has it changed the emergency room dynamic?
2: Yeah, I would say it's been a, a rather extraordinary phenomenon, and one that I've obviously not experienced during my 20-year career uh, in the emergency departments. Um So, I think your point about mask wearing is is a good one. Um, I know that that I, like most doctors, very much value my interaction uh, with the patient and value sharing a smile or uh, a hug um, or um, you know, some kind words. and it, it's it's difficult, I think, for patients to um, to perceive how, how I may be communicating with them because they don't have the visual cue of my facial expressions, for example. And no longer can I put an arm around a shoulder of a, of a patient who may have recently experienced a loss or is getting bad news. So that's been extraordinarily difficult. And the other thing I would say on that uh, line is that it's also been very difficult for our patients who are, who are more elderly, uh, right. perhaps hard of hearing, and might rely more on... on um, on um, lip reading if you will when they are when they're interpreting what's being spoken to them and so that's been difficult for sure i think um the other thing i would say is that it has been extraordinary in the emergency department especially at the peak of this pandemic when our our visits went down you know people were terrified of coming to the emergency department and understandably so i think the the whole world and certainly the 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 world of medicine or the house of medicine was was underprepared for this and didn't have adequate personal protective gear. Neither did the general public. And I, too, had I been a patient, would have been terrified of coming to a hospital or other healthcare care setting if I was ill or injured. And it was really quite striking how few patients we saw. Uh, and we had significant worries that many of these patients who might be experiencing chest pain or appendicitis or some other emergent condition might be delaying their care and avoiding coming to emergency departments because of the fear of COVID. So, very interesting subject matter.
0: You know, it's it's easy to to fall into a political discussion, and that's not our purpose here. What we're what, we're, what we hear day in and day out right now is almost at two different extremes. One would be. You know, we're not paying enough attention to the pandemic. We're not taking it seriously enough. And 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 another you know, point of view is the effect of taking it so seriously is you know, affecting people's livelihood, people's mental health, people dying of hunger around the world, etc. And and there, it, it feels sometimes like the public health has become so politicized. You can't have a discussion about the pandemic or healthcare in general without without it, it you taking a political stance. And at standing at the edge of that rabbit hole without falling in, I guess what I'm asking here is how do you, how does it feel for you? I mean you, you guys did not obviously get into this field to be, you know, the the, the frontline political topic. It's you 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 probably quite the opposite. Is it exciting in a certain way that everybody's attention is on public health, or do you feel like um it, it somehow is negatively impacting your day to day. And Dr. Clifford, I guess you're you're probably dealing with patients over a longer period of time, whereas Dr. Graves interacting, you know, maybe once is best because the emergency room framework. How do you, how do you feel about the politicization? Like, how do you deal with that in the in the office environment?
1: Great question. You know, I I think it's wonderful that health care is you know on the forefront as you know, I always call our health is the great equalizer. If you don't have your health, you really don't have anything. So it's an important topic to discuss. Related to politics, as an outpatient provider, I've always been fascinated by how freely patients will bring up politics with me and how they often assume that my political views, which I never bring up during an office visit, align with theirs. Um, Because the The office appointment with a physician is a vulnerable space and people bring up their deepest secrets and their private thoughts. They're comfortable speaking with me. And I've always been amazed at how often people think that their political views will align with mine because I'm their physician, because I'm this personal person and it, it's also fascinating in the hospital as a point of orientation we often ask patients you know if they know who the president is and that's usually the way the po- politics are brought up so we see this in in both the inpatient and outpatient settings but it is an important conversation to have because without your health you truthfully ha- don't have you don't have anything and it's the great equalizer <sighs>
0: How about you, Dr. Graves? What is, how do you deal with the political environment right now in your job?
2: Yeah, I think I would, I would echo the same or similar sentiments in that I try and avoid uh, bringing political discussion into the patient encounter. It's much like uh, family get-togethers and, and office talks. We really want to stay away from some of these very controversial and uh, lightning rod sorts of uh, subject matter. Um, but I will say that, that in many ways, I, I am biased. I'm a scientist by nature. My undergraduate degree was in microbiology. I believe in science, and it's been, it's been really frustrating for me personally and professionally uh, to see the influence of social media, uh, the questionable news sources, the mixed messages that are delivered uh, to the to the public, and that impacts our our patients. Um, you know, we have we have some patients who. Uh, strongly believe in, in no personal protective gear, such as a mask. Right. Uh, yet we have to balance that against hospital policy, which requires a mask when any patient or their family enters the emergency department setting. So we, we generally try and steer clear of sensitive subject matter like, like politics, understanding that the world is very polarized uh, right now. Um, but it, it's uh, it, it definitely presents some challenges. And most people, especially in my neck of the woods in New England, are are pretty compliant with with that mandate about mask wearing and are respectful and and are doing their share to help uh, minimize disease spread.
0: Well, gird yourselves because I'm about to get into one of those controversial questions that may be in some of our listeners' mind. At minds. We're on equal footing. I'm Dove Tusman. Our topic this evening is ripple effect, the rest of healthcare in a COVID-obsessed world. And I am here with our guests, Dr. Peter Graves, who's an emergency medicine physician with over 20 years of experience, Dr. Susan Clifford board certified nephrologist and also an internal medicine has been in practice for over 16 years our number to call in and talk to Dr. Graves and Dr. Clifford is 718-303-9090 questions on the effect of the pandemic on the rest of our health care both physical and mental health you can also text a question if you're shy about being on air to 917-428-4062 I'll put the question on the table and we'll take a break to give you guys a chance to to uh, see if you have to come up with a politically correct answer here. I'll ask both of you, do you think our reaction to the pandemic from a public health management perspective has exacerbated other health problems that we have in society or are we generally... Healthier because we're, you know, behaving differently or more aware of trans, you know, transmissible diseases, et cetera. So, has the pandemic exacerbated other problems in in our healthcare system and in our general well-being, or has it, in fact, in certain ways, uh, made it better? Not economically, of course, but in terms of physical and mental health. We will be right back with the answer to that question from our guests, Dr. Graves and Dr. Clifford, in just a couple minutes. Well, I
1: can run. As fast as I get to the middle of the
3: That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures.
0: All right, you're back on equal footing with Dove Tuzman. We're here with Dr. Susan Clifford and Dr. Peter Graves. We're talking about the ripple effect of the pandemic on other areas of healthcare, are the, the economic side of healthcare, the, the uh, both physical and mental health. So the question that we put out there before the break was: Has the pandemic exacerbated other problems in? In our general well-being and healthcare, or has it, in a in a weird way, perhaps improved other areas of general health in the population, given uh, changed habits and maybe being more careful about, you know, social distancing and so forth? Dr. Clifford, what what's your view?
1: Unfortunately, it's had a negative impact due to the fears of coming to the doctor's office. The doctor's office is being closed. For many of us, our offices were closed, especially in the New York area, March, April. We were only doing telemedicine visits. The access to care wasn't there. And fear of coming to a doctor's office, the routine things were not addressed and followed. The number one reason people come to see a doctor as an outpatient is hypertension. That's the main reason an adult will come see a physician. Blood pressures were not monitored. Diabetes is not monitored routine aches and pains that are new are not brought to the attention of a physician and treatments have been delayed so unfortunately all the non-covid things have not been approached in a timely fashion mammograms colonoscopies all delayed
0: in a certain sense before we get to you dr graves in the emergency room setting are we kind of are we then going to see a tidal wave of chronic health issues dr clifford are we kind of Have we not yet seen the real effect of the pandemic yet? Because there have been this area of you know preventative screenings or or you know know, preventative care that hasn't that has been disregarded over the last nine ten months.
2: Possibly.
0: Go ahead.
1: Possibly, uh, especially when it comes to preventative care, mammograms, colonoscopies, Pap smears all of these things if diagnosed early are easily taken care of diagnosed late there are more issues and waiting till a pain gets to attend and they have to seek emergency room care also changes the plan versus being an internist as an outpatient in a, on an elective manner versus an emergent manner
2: and yeah, I would agree with dr. dr. Clifford I, I think that we're I'm not sure if we're going to experience a tidal wave, uh, but I think we're going to experience a deferral of care, and that deferral of care will be palpable uh, over the next few months or years as some of these delays in care uh, present themselves uh, in a more urgent fashion. And it's an interesting question you posed about uh, how our reaction to the pandemic uh, from a public health standpoint has has either exacerbated uh, our health issues or made us healthier, and I, I have a kind of a mixed response to that um, I, I would agree wholeheartedly that the deferral of care is a real problem. I would agree wholeheartedly that we are seeing a higher incidence of uh, alcohol and substance abuse issues as people uh, are seeking ways to cope uh, with the, the stress of life in the setting of the, of the pandemic. Um, I think we are seeing a, an increase in mental health care needs and uh, the, the care provided to patients with mental health care, issues is, is delayed in many, in many instances because of concerns of, of COVID-19 and the need for rapid testing before patients can, can get into a mental health care facility for definitive care. On the flip side of that coin, though, I've also seen a lot of people who have rolled with the punches, uh, if you will, and have embraced the fact that we are all in this hardship together. Um, we are all forced outside. We are all forced to get more fresh air and perhaps more exercise and those are obviously you know healthy adaptive responses to the stress of the pandemic and not everyone has the opportunity or wherewithal to avail themselves of those sorts of activities and opportunities but i have seen a lot of people who who have done that and are embracing the the fresh air the quiet the decrease in pollution the free time um forced to be at home um which can present challenges for many but has been embraced embraced by some the other thing i'd say is that i i'm happy that from a public health standpoint, there's been an enormous amount of education provided uh, to the public about right. what we often do collectively mm-hmm. to reduce disease transmission. So, you know, within a matter of weeks, um, people had masks and were uh, trying to find desperately hand sanitizer, which was sold out. Uh, but now those those items are plentiful, and, and it's really gratifying in many respects to see people doing everything, everything they can to reduce disease transmission uh to uh, to others and, and and behaving in a in a societal manner that that will help us collectively avoid uh further spread of the pandemic
0: you know on that on that last point i think people are still afraid of going to the hospital of going to clinics right now and I, I get the sense that that's that that's getting better but if you take off your i know you can't represent the respective hospitals and practices that you work with in this comment but just from a common sense perspective is it reasonable for me to be afraid to go into the doctor for some preventative screening or something that I might be able to defer? Am I am I at enhanced risk right now, go, physically going in, not doing telehealth?
1: My <laughs> response generally to patients is, I'm more scared about you going to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the outpatient setting. Everyone's wearing protective gear. Everything is being washed down. Everyone is masked, gloved, washed. In the hospitals, same thing. To me, the hospitals and at least my practice and from what I hear from all my colleagues, the way we are cleaning and providing protective wear, it is a safe place to go. I think the risk of not addressing medical issues is greater than the risk of going into the office systems such as patients are waiting in their cars, they're not brought into the office until the exam room is ready, they're in the exam room, and then they're discharged from the office from the exam room. So there's none of this sitting in the waiting room for an hour, waiting to talk to people and congregating. To me, it's a very it's a safe place.
0: Well, that might be true in your practice, and I, I, of course I'm taking that on face value, Dr. Clifford, but Dr. Graves, is in an emergency room setting. You can't control for who's walking through the door, right? I mean, and I imagine people are coming in sick with COVID.
2: Yes, I think that's true. Um, But some of the same preventative measures are are in place in a compulsory fashion. So I would agree that it's probably far more risky to go to a social event or the supermarket or the gym or out to dinner and eating inside than it is to go to a hospital now. Now, six months ago, I don't think I would have shared – That opinion. I think I would have been more concerned about COVID transmission uh, in any hospital six months ago before we had the the proper gear, before we had all the the measures in place that we do now to protect patients and staff and so forth. Uh, But like Dr. Clifford mentioned, we we are mandatorily forced to wear the correct personal protective gear. There are extensive cleaning protocols in place. There are, you know, plexiglass partitions and mandatory social, social distancing measures in place in our waiting areas. Um, And we we actually use some of the same sort of techniques that Dr. Clifford mentioned where patients can check in but then wait in their car, for example, nearby uh, or even wait outside if the weather is conducive to that under a shelter. Um, um, But I would agree that, you know, if you were to to take all comers, there are patients that present to the emergency department with COVID-19. And so if you were to imagine what the prevalence is of the disease in the supermarket and compare that against the prevalence of disease in the hospital, In many cases, the prevalence might be higher in the
0: hospital setting. So let's talk about the hospital setting for a moment. There are two competing narratives that you get as a non-doctor or non-healthcare provider right now. One is there's risk of overwhelm. The system has at various points kind of reached a tipping point. I read an article today about hot spots in Texas and there aren't enough ICU beds and so forth. And another narrative is, People are afraid to go to the hospital. They people haven't stopped having strokes. People haven't stopped, you know, having uh, cardiac issues, et cetera. And people aren't going to the hospital, and they and the hospitals are empty. I, I know those are two extreme narratives, but which one, in your respective experiences, Dr. Clifford? I know you 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 see people in you know at hospitals and also at your private practice. Which which narrative is closer to the truth in your view?
1: I believe to answer that question, more goes with the flow of COVID in the area. So March and April, when the hospital was at 130% capacity and every single patient had COVID. As the numbers went down, the hospital census went down and ambulatory surgeries were canceled. And so there really was no one in the hospital currently in the New York City area where I work. We are back up to capacity and right now the COVID prevalence is very low. So it's been a kind of, it's been a wave where censuses were really high, censuses dropped, and now censuses are back to where they were about a year ago. I think our fear is really what is going to happen in the next few months when another wave comes of COVID and we have all the non-COVID issues as well.
2: Right, I would agree with that too. Um, you know, I do think the other the other point to make here is that our, our collective knowledge in the world of medicine has improved over the last six months, and I think we are now much more able to predict which patients may get uh, quite sick from COVID, which patients need to be admitted to the ICU, versus which patients might be best managed as an outpatient. And there's been a wealth of information that we uh, in society have, have gained over the last. Uh, experience of the, of, the, of the six months preceding to, to help us kind of predict which folks need to stay in the hospital, which folks can go home, and that that's helped us, I think, manage the, the hospital volume. Um, I will say that that many hospitals, my own included, are probably around 85 to 90 percent of what what our volumes would be expected to be if we compared year over year uh, pre-pandemic to this pandemic year. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the public, I believe, has also increased their trust. And coming to the hospital, whether it's to get an elective procedure done or to visit the emergency department.
0: Increase their trust.
2: Yeah, they have increased. Uh, But I share your concern. I mean, we we were shocked um, at how few patients we saw for a number of months during the peak of, of the pandemic. And I was wondering, you know, what happened to all the patients with heart attacks and what happened to all those patients with strokes? Inevitably, those disease processes continue uh, but the patients simply weren't showing up, and I worried very much that that folks were suffering at home without seeking timely care.
0: How about the the impact from an economic perspective? and we don't often talk about this in the public square right now, but I've read a lot about layoffs and both at private uh, in private practice, uh, at public hospitals, at teaching hospitals, et cetera. Is that has there been, have there been material layoffs in your experience in the in the field? Has there been some sort of permanent disruption as we've gone more towards telehealth?
2: Yeah, 100%. There has. Uh, I mean, I think that um, you know across the field of medicine, whether it's emergency medicine or internal medicine, nephrology, and any field you look at, um, there has been a significant impact uh, with the underlying economics, and and people have lost lost jobs or had reduced hours. It's really had a, a profound impact on healthcare, and it would be. So it's interesting. You think that in the middle of a pandemic, you think that probably the most protected jobs or the safest jobs or the jobs at lowest risk to have layoffs or hours reduction would be people in healthcare, because that's the very thing that's needed in the center of a pandemic. Um, but uh, that's, in fact, not the case, because many people chose not to seek health care, as we've been discussing, during the peak of the, impand- of the pandemic, and as a result, there's been uh, a reduced need for, uh, for health care providers um, for that reason.
0: How about you, Dr. Clifford? How has your practice fared economically, if you don't mind me asking it that way, or how are you seeing the economic impact on the the system from the pandemic?
1: For me personally, because as a kidney specialist, my patients are chronically ill and dialysis is not something you can start and stop and ignore, it is a life-saving procedure that needs to be consistently done. So, you know, those patients have stayed present. Um, As far as COVID is concerned, acute kidney failure related to COVID was unfortunately extremely common and made the hospital practice much busier than other subspecialties that may have been a little bit quieter and not seen the volume that they usually see. So because of the fact that my patient population at baseline is a sicker population and the COVID impact to my subspecialty was much higher. I didn't see that personal drop in patient population and in numbers, but many of my colleagues did.
0: I think it's fascinating for those of us that are not in the field, think about how much attention has gone into public health over this this over 2020, and how much the system is is suffering in many areas economically. It's a, it's an extraordinary um, dichotomy. We ha- we have a couple of uh, text questions which we'll get to after the break. Our number to call in on the topic of a ripple effect, the rest of healthcare in a COVID obsessed world is 718. 718- If you prefer to text a question, if you're shy about being on the radio, it's 917-428-4062, or you can text a question. We're on with our guests, Dr. Peter Graves and Dr. Susan Clifford, and we will be right back.
3: Are you a small or medium-sized business owner who wants to provide a low-cost, effective health benefit for your employees, or a school administrator who wants to ensure all of your students have the proper vaccines, or maybe you're a parent trying to keep your family's medical records up to date? Well, welcome to DocuVax, an easy-to-use digital locker accessible on your laptop or smartphone that allows you to safely store and validate basic medical information, including immunization records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are the days of losing time tracking down old medical records or sharing test results with a new healthcare provider. The DocuVax system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile, from flu and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings to blood type and allergies. To sign up, go to www.docuvax.com or call 833-859-1933. For as little as $9.99 per month, DocuVac subscribers can privately access all of their medical records from a secure HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. And as a DocuVac subscriber, medical professionals are on call for you 24 hours a day to validate your vaccine records, blood tests, or anything else in your locker. DocuVac's medical data is never accessible unless the individual subscriber wants to share it privately using a proprietary QR code-based system that keeps data secure at all times. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine, blood test, or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file and sign up at docuvax.com. And if your organization is interested in learning about becoming a Docuvax sponsor to get group discounts, please call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by.
0: Good evening. You're back on Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman. My guests, Dr. Susan Clifford and Dr. Peter Graves, We're talking about the ripple effect of the pandemic on the rest of healthcare, other areas of healthcare. All right, guys, this dovetails with uh, what I was hoping to get into in this segment around the fusion of mental health and physical health. And we have a question from a nurse. She signs off as Nancy, the nurse in Manhattan. The question is, are you still scared? And how are you dealing with the stress? Now, the fact that it comes from a nurse probably gives both of you more context. Are you still scared? I assume scared of of getting COVID-19 or giving it to loved ones. And how are you personally dealing with the stress? So, I don't know, Dr. Clifford, maybe you could... Start us off.
1: Yes. Point blankly, yes, I am still scared. I'm still scared personally. I'm still scared for my patients. I'm still scared for my family. COVID affects all age groups. Obviously, it's more in the elderly, but it clearly affects all age groups. I mentioned previously the end-stage renal disease population is an extremely high risk population we lost about 10 to 15 percent of our dialysis patients during the peak of the pandemic in new york in march and april my god i get scared when i come home and my son my son is there my scrubs come off right away in the wash machine that there's been no drop in the fear. How do you deal with it? Kind of the same way I think everybody does. You wake up in the morning, you are happy and thankful that you have woken up that day, and you go about your day and you do what you have to do. And you continue to do what you have to do because you love it, you are committed to it, and you feel strongly about it.
0: I can feel the that, that fear in your voice, they were all scared to some degree. And, and I also just want to emphasize on air the the, um, I guess the condolences and I mean, you're, you're, you're tending to, to patients with extraordinary, extraordinarily high risk. And that's a shockingly high number, 10 to 15% of your patients on dialysis. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Passed yes, away as as a direct result of, COVID-19? of
1: COVID nineteen of COVID infections. These were people who were on dialysis previously, got the infection, and then were hospitalized. And the prognosis is impacted by their other other medical history.
0: Right. Yeah, the comorbidity issue. Correct. Doctor Graves, Nancy, the nurse, is asking, are you are you still scared? And how do you deal with the stress?
2: Uh, yes, I am. And, Nancy, thank you for the question. It's a great question. Um, I, think, I think the complete answer is that, yes, I am still scared, uh, but I'm less scared than I was a few months ago. I think there were a lot more unknowns a few months ago. I think I have the cumulative experience of those months knowing that my protective medical equipment uh, has been successful at preventing me and my family uh, from contracting the disease and, and spreading the disease around. But but I, I, I agree with Dr. Clifford. Uh, every day I work, uh, I go into work, I have all of my gear, I come home from work, all that stuff gets either thrown out or goes in the laundry, and I jump in the shower before I interact with my family or my pet or anything, right. because I just don't know. And then the emergency department, um, every patient that comes to the front door is what, what I would call undifferentiated. We don't know if they have or don't have the disease. We don't know what their risk factors are for potentially having the disease. And so we have to assume, regardless of what the complaint of the patient is, that they may have the disease. Because as we all know, there is a fairly high uh, number of patients who are essentially asymptomatic or have unusual presentations with this disease. It's not like everyone has a fever and a cough and loses their sense of smell and taste, right? So, you know, and we've seen cases in the emergency department where someone comes in with, uh, you know, abdominal discomfort or a rash or something that you would think would be completely unrelated yet ends up testing positive for the disease process. So, so we have to be extremely careful. But at the same time, we have grown to become more comfortable um, in our own shoes, if you will, um, understanding that we all signed up for this. Uh, we, we love providing care for patients. We love helping people, and we know that people are in need and, and have a need for emergent health care for whatever condition that may present. The other thing I'd like to mention here is briefly is that um, we are seeing, uh, for better or for worse, many many physicians' offices declining to provide anything but telemedicine care for their patients, and instead, sending their patients to the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's frustrating because, you know, m- many times the pediatrician's office in the past would be able to provide a sick visit, for example, for their patient with a fever. But now many offices are only doing well visits, and many primary care doctors' offices are only seeing patients for, you know, routine screenings and, and routine checkups as opposed for any sort of um, sick visits. And those patients are, are, are shunted to the ER Uh, which is professionally challenging and and contributes to our, our, our volumes in the ED and our risk exposure.
1: Do you believe we all, the statement we all signed up for this, my question for you as a physician, for all the nurses, physicians, transporters, that we signed up for Take caring for people with a potentially communicable disease that would, could end our life. I'm not so sure healthcare providers signed up for that. Is that what you're saying, or...
0: That's a great question. Because That's a fantastic
1: question. Officer, I, I agree officers, with you. I feel, you know, they know when they go to work. I have a cousin who's a police officer, and, you know, every day he has his gun on his belt. He doesn't know what the next call will be. Firefighters, armed forces. But I didn't think that I would wake up for a job one day where my life may be on the line.
2: Yeah, that's a great observation. And I, I would agree in some sense that, that none of us could have predicted that we would have to deal with a pandemic of this proportion during our, our medical career. And I, I'm thinking back to the Ebola scare of a number of years ago. I think I think most people, in many ways, at least across healthcare, were more nervous about that disease process just because of how dramatically that tended to present and how uh, I think ill prepared we were for that sort of process at the time. Um, but I, but I agree. I, I I personally didn't quote sign up for this uh, when it comes to, to dealing with a pandemic. And and the other thing I would say is that I also didn't sign up for not having the the right equipment, or enough of it, or, or the right policy and procedure, and those things thankfully came uh, over time. But early on, everyone was terrified, myself included. And I, you know, my job is hard enough where I go to work every day and I worry about um, losing a patient or, or a sick infant or, or being exposed to a disease or violence or, or gunfire. Um, and I, you know, I signed up for a lot of those things, but but I didn't I didn't think about this as a possibility. And I think that when this first broke. I wasn't necessarily mentally prepared right. uh, for the risk that, that, that it has resulted in. And, I, you know, I go to work every day, and I have to wear an N95 mask, which is painful. And I, I come home with, with dents in my face that don't go away for hours until after I get home. So it's, it's just added an entire level of discomfort and complexity and challenges to the whole uh, job, which can be very challenging uh, at its baseline.
0: We we are hitting a nerve, guys, because we're getting several text questions coming in the last few minutes. And we have a couple of callers as well. So first of all, um, Nancy, the nurse, is, sent to, is listening to your comment just now. Your question just now, Dr. Clifford, has asked, "Would you have changed your choice of profession?"
1: No, I would not. Not for this reason. Not because of COVID. Um, for me personally. What I struggle with as a physician is being a part of so many painful life experiences with patients. I get very close, I went into nephrology because they're complicated and they, you get very close with patients and every time something bad happens to one of them, it happens to me. And I struggle with that in general in medicine. I don't think COVID has changed that other than when people are sick and they pass away it's similar to non-COVID periods of time when people are sick and pass away. But COVID itself has not scared me away from medicine.
0: Dr. Graves, I hope you don't mind me saying on the air, you, you, you're also completing your MBA, and I know you've worked both on the administrative side and, of course, in patient care. How about that question for you? Have, has this has this experience caused you to think about whether you would have changed your, your profession or direction within the profession?
2: <laughs> that's, a, that's fantastic, yeah. I, I, um, you know, I'm at the point in my life where, where I have started to have uh, some more thoughts about, you know, exactly when and how I could potentially retire or reduce my hours in the clinical arena uh, because of those concerns for exposure. And I, I know that, that many listeners, I'm sure, have had to deal with some of the challenges of working at home uh, or homeschooling, for example. And I, um, I can't do that. I, I can't bring the emergency patients to my house, nor do I have the equipment and resources here to care for them. Um, and in some ways. I would, I would love to work from home. I think uh, if I had the kind of career that I, I could do that with, but I, but I can't. And so I go to work, and I love my job, uh, despite the challenges of the, of the pandemic. Um, so would I, would I change my career? Uh, no. Um, would I prefer to perhaps reduce my exposure and perhaps shift into an area of medicine um, that had a, a lower percentage of patients that might have COVID or any other disease process for that matter? Sure, I've had those thoughts yeah, um, in honest. regards to administrative work. I mean, I've, I've I've done a lot of administrative work in my career and really enjoyed that. I like being part of the uh, solution to problems and coming up with great new ideas and fixing issues, and that's really why I embarked down that path in particular. Um, so I certainly could envision a scenario in the future where I might look to reduce my clinical um, work with patients and move more into an administrative arena, but honestly, I prefer caring for patients. That's the reason I went into medicine in particular and the reason I went into emergency medicine in particular is because I love caring for patients. I love helping people. I love saving lives. That's what I do, and that's what gives me the most job satisfaction. So I think at the end of the day, uh, I'm not going anywhere.
0: Dr. Graves and Dr. Clifford, I really appreciate your honesty. I think our listeners do too. In that spirit, I wanted to just read from – this is Marty from Philadelphia who says, Not a question but a comment of sincere gratitude for the clarity and authenticity and personal nature of this discussion. And also, I am noticing how rare it seems to be to have a very personal conversation about these challenges, I assume these healthcare challenges around the pandemic, without the politicized adversarial charge that obscures these very personal and real issues. Please thank your guests for this clarity and their work. So... It's, it's resonating. I, I, these, are, these are tough topics. Uh, uh, you know, I, I appreciate Nancy, the nurse, opening the door. We're going to take a call before the next break here uh, from Stan on Line 5. Hi, Stan.
4: How are you? Good evening. Good evening hey. to both the doctors. Uh, let me, to some extent, correct the gentleman doctor. He made a statement that to me is an absolute lie, and that statement is this. We are all in this together. That is the greatest absurdity of all time, and we have seen it time and time again. We are not all in this together. In fact, it's to some extent every person for themselves, sadly, in a pandemic. Medicine has been turned upside down. You can't go to see your doctor. If you can, he's taking new patients because other doctors are not opening up, as the other woman doctor said. And that, uh, you have to wait a month to two months. You can be dead in a month to two months. Is that the way it should be, or no, that's the way it will be? Uh, going to the emergency room, of course, the COVID scare is always there. But you may have to do that. And even then, you'll sit in the waiting room for 15 hours or 12 hours. That doesn't change with the disease or without the disease. But the real tragedy, I think, is, uh, for example, the real, I think, phony, is the telemedicine. I'm sorry to say, I think it is watered-down medicine. Obviously, it's the only way it could be at the time, but medicine and doctors of patient care is usually one-on-one, to some extent, physically touching the person to see if and when, well, does this hurt? I, you can't tell on TV or on the – come on. Zoom is, has its limitations.
0: <laughs> Stan, it's a let's, joke. Let's tackle I, – I, lo- I love this. I, and I love you, you though. The, <laughs> I appreciate your authenticity. <laughs> let's tackle your – because I think you're asking two different things. So let's tackle the first one. Uh, you're saying we are not all in this together. That's BS. Uh,
4: that, that is an absolute truth, yes.
0: Okay. And so, Dr. Clifford, let's start with you. Uh, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, it, it's actually, you know what, Doctor Graves? I think Stan was saying that he was calling you out on it, more, So Let's start with you. Is
4: <laughs> nothing personal? <laughs> no, 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 no offense taken, Stan. I, I, okay, I okay. But I uh, think it's true. I think it's true. I mean, you, maybe you could. I mean, let's be honest. We're all trying to figure out what to do on our own. And it's survival, sadly, and I think, that, uh, of the fittest. Kidney disease, as the lady doctor said, is a negative in this situation. Many are dying, but I think we're not all in this together. And, and the gentleman who called about the political on the email, political, sorry to say, is in there, too. I mean, you can't deny it and hide it and close the book on it. But
0: go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a I great question. Go ahead. Yeah. It, it
2: is. And I think the statement that we're all in it together, um, is meant to be taken with a grain of salt. We, we are all in it together, but at different degrees, with different resources, uh, with different expectations. I mean, there's no question that it is a global pandemic. Uh, but there are people with, with, uh, with different resources to deal with it, uh, different, uh, political mindset, different information at hand. And I feel that, too, in the emergency department. And, Stan, I'll I'll 100% agree with you that telemedicine is not an adequate solution. uh, I need to
4: see you, doctor, if if you're going to see me. If I'm having pain, you would touch me on my abdomen. You ain't going to touch me on the (laughs) tube.
2: No, I I completely agree with you. And, you know, we don't obviously do telemedicine in the emergency department for that very reason. Right. I, right. I, I I can very well tell you that you have appendicitis without doing an exam and some laboratory test imaging study. That's not possible Dr. in my world. Some areas, Sorry, I think, are better able than others to deal with telemedicine consultations, um, but certainly emergency medicine is not not one of them. And if you want to come up to my ER stand, I, <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I really don't want to if
2: I don't need to. Yeah, I think you'd
4: appreciate that.
0: Dr. Clifford, <laughs> you, you, you have to do a lot of telemedicine, right? How do you feel about it? Is it, is it effective?
4: We
1: we are doing some telemedicine. I will agree with Stan to an extent that doesn't offer a lot of things that in-person visits can provide. It is a difficult transition for me as a physician to work with telemedicine because there are definitely things that you can't evaluate over Zoom. Keeping up with the rest of the world and keeping up with technology, I think medicine is going to have to go the direction of telemedicine to an extent, but I agree with Stan that nothing beats sitting with a physician, looking at them eye-to-eye, face-to-face, and having a direct conversation, not talking to a staff member, not being through a computer, nothing beats a face-to-face interaction with a physician.
0: I really appreciate that question, Stan. We're gonna take a quick break and come back with Doctor Susan Clifford and Dr. Peter Graves. We're talking about the ripple effect of the COVID nineteen pandemic on the rest of health care in our society. We'll be right back on equal footing with Doug Desmond.
5: Have you been looking for an auto body and repair shop you can trust in the Catskills region? Whether you've been in an accident or need an affordable mechanic for brakes, tires, or alignments, Liberty Collision will always give you a fair price, reliable estimate, and on-time service. Conveniently located in Liberty, New York, and serving Sullivan, Orange, Ulster, and Delaware counties, Liberty Collision will pick up and drop off your vehicle and works with all major insurance companies. Call 845 845- 292 and let the Liberty Collision team take care of you. That's 845-292-0977 Car repairs don't have to be stressful. Liberty Collision is a family owned business and has a 5 star in CarWise because they treat you like family too. So call Liberty Collision at 845-292-0977 for all your auto repair needs. Ask for Keith and Mental Equal Footing for 30% off your first alignment.
0: Good evening. You're back on equal footing with Dove Tusman, my guests, Dr. Peter Graves and Dr. Susan Clifford, talking about the effect of the pandemic on other areas of, of healthcare. I wish this show could go on for another hour. We only have seven minutes left. We've got a lot to, to cover. I'd like to ask what I've been kind of, I've been wrestling with over the last week, whether to actually ask this question because it can, I'm trying to do it in such a way it won't sound too political. I read a report from the World Hunger Organization recently that estimated that there could be over 50 million hunger-related deaths in the year 2020. A- the average age of death of someone that, that, that dies in some way related to hunger and the inducement of, of hunger-related afflictions is 23 years old. The number of hunger deaths, as estimated by the World Hunger Organization in 2019, last year was nine and a half million. So that would be an increase of, if the organization is correct, of 40 million deaths, average age 23. COVID-19, I believe, has killed, and every, in Judaism we say every life is a universe. Every person, every every person's experience is 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 extraordinarily important. This is in no way minimizing uh, the tragic passing of any individual. Numbers-wise, I think the pandemic has taken between two and three million lives, if I'm not mistaken, or some, something, maybe even less, directly and indirectly. And the average de- death age with COVID-19 is around 80. Average. Obviously, it, it, The number of hunger deaths has not gone down since night, it's not gone up rather since 1944. So the last time we saw hunger go up year on year, deaths from hunger was during World War II. And this time, this year we could see a four or 500% increase. Ethically, what are we doing? Like how, how should we not be just kind of pushing forward in the developed world at least and not shutting things down and Just kind of doing what the greatest generation did in World War II and kind of, you know, bucking up and taking the risk. Why so much focus on this particular public health challenge at the risk of so many other lives that are affected that obviously by economic shutdown and because people that have hunger insecurity and die from hunger related afflictions are. It's primarily just related to income. It's related to, to the resources. So, I know it's a very roundabout question, but I, I don't feel like we can finish the show without without bringing up that that ethical problem. What do you think, Dr. Graves? <laughs> well, That's quite
2: the quite the hot button question to end the talk on, uh, and, and and quite polarizing in many ways. I I, I think that. Um, you know, while, while COVID-19 uh, is a problem in which I, I do believe we're all in it together in some respects, um, I also believe it's a, it's a whole world problem. Uh, but with with social media, with the politicization of the whole issue, it's also very much a first world problem. Um, and I think uh, we are all keenly aware because of news sources and, and so forth that, that we're at risk from this disease. And, and I think... You know, the disease has also obviously uh, caused massive damage to world economies and supply chains, and, and a whole variety of things that, that result in some of the, the food uh, resource deaths that you are alluding to. Um, but, I, but I think we're all very aware of it in the first world, and, and have turned it into more of a first world problem in some respects. So it's a scary disease. But if you look at if you look at polio, for example, um, you know, polio uh, affected young people um uh, and had a very dramatic effect on those who got quite sick with the disease with with paralysis and other complications uh whereas covid tends to tends to cause death uh but amongst the uh, the more elderly population and i and i hate to suggest that um, that that may have an effect on how we perceive the disease or how we respond to it uh, but i think there are there are differences between those two diseases and 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 that draws parallels between the COVID-19 epidemic and more global problems with higher magnitudes, such as world hunger.
0: That's a great way to put it. it actually, relates ironically to the the, the the issue that Stan brought up, and I guess in a certain sense we're we're agreeing with him to some extent. Dr. Clifford, what do you think? Is there, to put it very blithely, is there too much attention being paid to COVID-19 at the expense of the general welfare?
1: I think the best way for me to answer that question is to go back anecdotally to something someone said to me when I was a resident. I was doing a morbidity and mortality conference, which is when you examine the treatment of a patient who ultimately passed away and see if there are things you can do differently. And my attending said to me, infection is the final common pathway meaning that ultimately speaking, infections can kind of take over and lead to the passing in almost everyone. And my concern here is that this infection can be the final common pathway and that we have to address it strongly and powerfully so that it doesn't impact all of us. And while there will be, to quote your title, ripple effects of that, death from other causes, from missing other medical issues. I think if we don't take care of this powerfully, bigger things will happen that are not good.
0: Dr. Clifford and Dr. Graves, I deeply appreciate your integrity and your honesty on this, on this show and the work that you do in the public health sphere. Dr. Graves is a emergency room uh, physician. And Dr. Clifford is a nephrologist and an internal medicine, and you guys have dedicated your lives to to patient care. God bless you both. Thank you for being on equal footing this evening, and we will be back next week.
4: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much.
4: strong, would you hear my voice? Come through the
1: music. Would
5: you hold it near as it...